Hello, and welcome to the Transform Sales Podcast. We're in the triple digits now. I don't know if this is gonna be 101 or 121, but I am so excited that we are in the triple digits of podcast. And today I am so excited to have Mark Raffin here. How are you, Mark? I'm very well, and congratulations on making the triple digits. Thank you, thank you, thank you. A labor of love for sure. It always is. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely is. Let me tell you a bit about Mark. He's the founder and CEO of Negotiations Ninja, one of the leading negotiation training companies in the world. He's an entrepreneur, sales and procurement veteran, podcast host, speaker, and recognized negotiation expert. Mark utilizes his extensive speaking experience to deliver engaging, usable, and market-relevant training to an underserved market. He's the host of the Negotiations Ninja podcast, where he's interviewed the best negotiators in the world. He is an expert in influence, persuasion, and negotiation, and has coached executives and teams in some of the largest companies in the world. He's been referenced in Entrepreneur, Forbes, Thrive Global, and many other publications. Wow. Negotiations. That's right up my alley. So how did you get started, and how did you become this negotiations ninja? I started out my career in sales, advertising sales, actually, right out of university. Did very, very well. Ended up making enough money to pay off all my student loans in my first year. And then decided after that that we were going to move. So we moved cities, my wife and I, and then I got a job in procurement and sort of fell into that. Led my career through procurement for a while, ended up leading a few categories, and then just over five years ago decided the corporate world wasn't for me and I wanted to do my own thing and started Negotiations Ninja podcast. That led to a training company and the training company is what we do today. Wow. So, you know, one of the things that as salespeople, we just really don't like is we don't like procurement. Oh, we're not all that bad. We're not all that bad. Man, I, I actually train salespeople. I'm like, anything you can do, stay out of procurement. How can we get around (laughs) procurement? Like, that is the strategy that we teach in our sales training. But tell me, so you were in sales and you said it didn't really click for you that well. You made money, but it wasn't quite your thing. What about sales made you say, I want to try something different? I was young and I just wanted to try something new. And I had been convinced that moving around into different departments was probably a good idea. So I spent time in procurement. I spent time in finance. Then I went back to procurement. And so, yeah, it just ended up being my world for a long time. What about procurement really excited you? Um, that's a really good question. I, I wouldn't say that I chose it intentionally. I sort of fell into it. It was a job that was available in the city that I was moving to. And so it was just one of those things that I was like, hey, I'll give this a go. And I got the offer and, and that sort of led to a career that I absolutely loved. And I ended up loving it. I didn't choose it because I loved it. And procurement's one of those weird things where you're like, the more that you do it, the more you're like, I really like this. This is really cool. You get to do a lot of strategic things and you get to kind of be the, the bridge between the organization and the outside world. And it's nice. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So many of the people who listen to this podcast, you know, they're like me. Procurement is this black box. Purchasing blocks things. You know, we, we're not very fond of purchasers because of these things. What happens behind the scenes in the procurement department? Help us understand your world. The goal of procurement in any organization is to be able to drive value for the organization. So think of them as the other side of the sales coin, right? We have the same customer as you in sales. We are both trying to serve the business user of the thing that you're selling. We're just trying to buy it for better value at lower risk. 
And so while you're trying to maximize value on your end, we're also trying to maximize value on our end, just in a different way. So we actually both have the same customer. We're just, our customer is internal and your customer is external. It's the same person. And so the goal within procurement is to try our best to facilitate business at the best value possible. And we do that through all of the different strategies that we have. And so I think a lot of salespeople have a negative connotation associated with procurement, but recognize also that procurement's just got a job to play like everyone else. And I think a lot of people tend to take it personally when procurement's like, go pound salt, we're not giving you an increase, or absolutely not, you need to give us a better price. That's their job, right? They're paid to do that in much the same way that a salesperson is paid to increase sales or increase prices. Hmm, that's a really good way to, you know, strike a balance between sales and procurement. I, I really like that. You mentioned a couple times you guys have strategies. There are strategies that you have to tap into, strategies that you're trying to employ. What are some of those strategies that within the procurement department that you have? It really does depend on what we're sourcing. So strategically as a sales, I'll try and compare procurement to sales as much as I can so we can draw some correlation between the two. So as a salesperson, you would segment your sales strategically if you were the VP of sales into different quadrants, right? Depending on the profitability and the opportunity, that would determine what opportunity or what quadrant you would put that client, for example, right? So if it's high profitability and high opportunity, they're a top right-hand quadrant client, you would spend a lot of your time on that particular customer and go from there. We have the same sort of approach. We segment our procurement into different quadrants as well. And it's based on the spend that you generally have and the risk that's associated with that spend. So if it's high spend, high risk, it's top right-hand quadrant. That means they're a strategic Mm. supplier. We'd spend a lot of time with that particular supplier. And we approach that supplier very differently than if it's low spend and low risk. Mm. For example, like prior to COVID-19, a low spend, low risk quadrant would have been PPE or MRO, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking of MRO, maintenance, repair, operations, bolts, screws, boots, hard hats, et cetera, PPE, tactical, generally speaking, is how most people in procurement would have viewed it prior to COVID-19, high churn, lots of supply available, lots of alternatives, don't need to spend a lot of time on it, fairly commodity-based, burn and churn kind of methodology. Whereas if you're Oracle and you form the financial backbone of my corporation, or in your world, for example, in the chemical business, if you're a, a raw input chemical that helps me to produce my output chemical, Mm. and you're critically important, and you're one of two suppliers in the world, you're a top right-hand quadrant vendor, right? And so Mm. I treat those vendors very differently based on how I operationalize and strategize the spend that I have, in much the same way that sales would too, if there's no opportunity and there's we're making no money off of them, we really don't spend a lot of time on them. Mm. Same thing. I think I just got a a correlation and I understand a little bit about how your business that we're going to tap into a little bit actually works because in listening to you, I'm like, okay, so every salesperson actually should be tapping into somebody in procurement, somebody in purchasing to understand where they fit in this matrix, because depending on where they fit in that matrix, that actually determines the kind of relationship that they're going to have, how long this is going to take, how much push and pull there's going to be in this process. Absolutely. And this is why value-based selling is so important because even if you are technically classified in a lower left-hand quadrant, 
then you have to determine, okay, how do I position myself higher within the mind of someone in procurement, right? How do I make myself feel more valuable? How do I make myself sound more strategic? How do I position myself within that procurement department so that I become a strategic partner instead of someone who's seen as a commodity-based seller who's really not really needed? Mm, wow, that's good. That's good. You're, like I said, you're you're bringing me over. People can convince me of things. I'm convincible. So when you you said you didn't get into the position and really enjoy it, what turned that corner for you and made you start really tapping in and enjoying your position in procurement? When I started getting involved in more strategic direction, I think like everyone, when you first start out your career, you're handed the grunt work. Right. And so when you start your career, you're like, all right, I know I'm going to have to earn my way into a position that makes sense. So as I started getting more strategic outlook into more roles that required conversations with business users and the direction that they wanted to go with things, then it became easier and much more enjoyable. And I think what a lot of people don't realize with a lot of procurement people is we're a shared service like finance, HR, training, all of those parts of a major corporation, we are in procurement a shared service. And that means that it is our responsibility to represent the user's best interests as best as possible, right? And so sometimes that means we have to get played off as sort of the quote unquote bad guy in the conversation so that the business user can maintain a positive relationship with mm. whomever they're buying their things from because they use us as the means to be able to get value for those things. And so when I started having those strategic discussions with those business users about the direction they wanted to go in with their projects and all those plans that were ongoing, then I could layer in some purchasing strategy and some negotiation strategy to be able to get them best value for their future needs. And that became much more enjoyable than just cutting POs, which is generally what you start doing when you start your procurement career. Mm, and generally that's that's where salespeople and I would say, yeah, so salespeople and depending on the kind of manager that you are, you're probably at that level of just that purchaser who's just cutting the POs, who's just like pushing things along. Okay, I got a quote, I'm just pushing things along. But as you said, even with um, for instance, you mentioned chemicals, right? And so we're you're buying chemicals, they're like two, three, four dollars a pound. However, the goal of any good chemical salesperson is to have a long-term agreement, is to have someone who says, we're going to buy millions and millions of pounds from you each year, and we're going to sign a four or five-year contract. So when you think about that strategic piece, and you think about who do I need to have at the table to ensure that we can have this multi-year, multi-million dollar deal, that's when you have to tap into a senior purchaser. Yeah, and it's especially important to do that if you're selling strategic stuff. Right, like chemicals, for example, for a lot of chemicals facilities, I know that's sort of your background and your world, so I'm gonna, I'll stay there for a bit. Like the person most likely who is buying the chemicals is probably a chemical engineer or a chemist. And so they have that, like the one of my closest friends who purchases chemicals from one of the largest fertilizer companies in the world, he's the chemical category manager there, he's a chemical engineer. And so when he buys chemicals, he speaks to it from a base of like really in-depth knowledge, whereas things that are more tactical, 
generally don't have that extreme knowledge. For example, if you chat with anyone who buys materials for large clothing manufacturers, they are specialists in that specific material, like non-woven fabrics, rubber. They understand that world at a deep, deep, deep level, and they've generally been in that world for a long time. And the idea behind category management, which underpins a lot of procurement, is that you get category specialists who are knowledgeable in that area, who can build on that and get best value for what they're buying. Wow. You said something that I often say to people who are kind of like interested in sales, don't know what sales is about. And I say everything in life is sold by a human to some another human. And so what you're telling us is like everything that is bought, there is a human that specializes in understanding what the value is, what the best pricing is, what the risk associated with taking on a new vendor and all of these bits and pieces. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I delivered a course on this this morning, teaching people how to implement category strategy in their procurement teams, where a deep understanding of each category that you're buying within is required. For those of you that may not necessarily be familiar, for those listeners that may not be familiar with category management, it's a way to group like purchases of certain goods and services into similar things so that you can get scale and so that you can get consolidation. Because one of the ways that we drive value within our organization is to be able to purchase within an organization to be able to get that scale. So for example, professional services as a category could include legal services, consulting services, audit services, any kind of labor-based white-collar type work would be something like professional services. You'd group that into a particular category. And so you would have someone within the organization that is a specialist on purchasing those types of labor services. So when you need to understand what the competitive marketplace for consultants look like across the top four consulting firms in the world, they'll be able to draw you a competitive roadmap of what that looks like, all the comparative price differences between each one, what the value differences are, and help you make the best decision possible within the organization. That's the entire goal. Wow. It's amazing. I I mean, and when you work within this arena, this complex B2B sales, and you talk about that today in this day and age in 2023, we have about 8.2, this number I landed on, 8.2 people that are involved in the buying process. And so they're the sleepers that people don't realize. So a lot of times a salesperson, the mistake that they make is they're just talking to that one person. They're just talking to the chemist, just talking to the engineer, just talking to the operations manager. And then they get the wool pulled out from them at the end when they haven't done the strategic work. They haven't found out who else needs to be involved in this decision, who else has impact and influence and who's signing those, um, you know, the PO, like who are those people? Yeah, I think the single biggest mistake that most salespeople make is that they think it's a one-to-one sale. And it's not a one-to-sale, it's a one-to-many sale. Mm -hmm. And your ability to understand the stakeholders that affect and are affected by the sale are very, very important. Not just the stakeholders, but those people that influence the sale of the business user, right? So you've got a person who's buying your stuff, but then there are people that influence that purchase Procurement is one of those big groups. They have no decision-making authority, but they strongly influence the decision. So the more that you can convince a procurement person that you are the best choice possible, the easier your sale is going to be. 
Mm, yes, I, I call it when we think about who are all of the the people involved in this the sales process of of um, purchasing, buying, selling. Um, I talk about your internal champion. That's the person that a lot of people are already targeting. Sometimes it's the wrong person, and I say that internal champion is the person who will speak for you when you're not around. Right? Like yes. they go get the decision maker. They go get whatever needs to have be done. They may not even hold a budget. But they're like, I have a big problem. I have the pain. I can get this done. This The decision maker, that's the person who signs the check. However, what, as you said, the team of influencers, and I like to talk about the team of influencers because they, if they're not asked, they're not going to say anything. But you that's ask right. them a question and they're going to be like, oh, you know what? Two weeks ago, this person came in and they had this great presentation. Oh, I didn't tell you guys about that. And they're going to be like, yeah, but this person, every time I see him, they ignore me in the hallway. Like those sleepers, like you said, those are the people who really impact these large purchase decisions. Yes, absolutely. I, and I think it's important for the listeners to identify not just all influencers, but the major influencers. Because, we, yeah, there are a ton of people who may influence a particular purchase decision, but there there are major influencers that do that as well. And so you have to identify who, if you're selling into a large corporation, a large B2B billion-dollar-plus organization, there's probably a category manager associated with that particular spend. You need to identify who that person is so that you can positively impact that decision. Or a strat sourcing manager that that strat sourcing is sort for strategic sourcing, strat sourcing manager who is responsible for purchasing that particular thing or sourcing that particular thing, the better you know who that is, the easier it is to influence that. And so when you talk about purchasing um, products versus purchasing services within large organizations, um, there are some intricacies of differences. What, Maybe. how would you differentiate for product sales versus service sales? So, Depending on the organization that you're working with, so I'm going to speak in generalities, depending on the organization that you're working with, most categories are split into two major groups. So direct, which is direct materials or direct services, and indirect, which is anything that's indirectly associated with the production of goods. So think of direct. We had the chemical example earlier. So if I'm producing a fertilizer and I need a raw input chemical to produce that fertilizer, that would be direct spend. If I have anything indirect, that would be like software, consulting, audit, HR, anything that indirectly contributes to that thing. So those are the two main split off groups. What we're talking about when we're talking about materials is generally speaking, we're talking about direct. Um, the purchase of those goods is highly dependent, generally speaking, on the location that you're purchasing them from, depending on the geography, whether or not it's a a very difficult geography to work in, or and the supply chain associated with the purchase of those things. Generally speaking, most of those direct materials are tied to certain market indices that fluctuate because most of them are commodity-based. And so you can really see how the market is moving based on the industry that, that you manage. But I would highly recommend that if you're gonna get into that world of direct sourcing, you get very comfortable with where you're sourcing the material from and the supply chain that's associated with bringing that material in and how to manage the costs associated best with that commodity. Because without understanding those three things, it becomes almost impossible to manage that. Whereas if you compare that with services, that's very different because most of it is local. 
generally speaking. I mean, obviously you can outsource a lot of services, but the vast majority of the services that we source are local. Most of them are probably regional, meaning we can, you know, it's someone down the street because KPMG has offices everywhere. <laughs> and then we're primarily just dealing with the sourcing of people at that yeah. point, which sometimes is a lot easier than the sourcing of material. Yeah. So really understanding and a lot of times what I see within sales organizations is they don't understand these simple things in terms of, okay, I sell a product. I am a distributor. Um, so there are hands, there are different things that I have to do. I am an engineering firm. I'm an architect firm. Like it's so different and they don't take the time to really understand how things are purchased, how things are bought, the whole process that people go through on the other side of things. I like to tell salespeople, I'm like, you need to get your customers to educate you. Go sit down and talk to them and ask them questions. Like, how does this happen? The last time you purchased this, what was the process? Can you point me in this direction or that direction? At a very simple baseline level as a new salesperson. I think it really does depend on the maturity of the company that you're speaking to as well and the maturity of the industry. Like in automotive, chemical, commodity-based industries that have been around for a long time, you'll see significantly more well-developed procurement teams, a lot more mature processes, all that kind of stuff. Whereas in like the tech world and the startup world, it's moving so fast and they're scaling so quickly that it's a lot more difficult to understand how things are built. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that goes to how they get their salespeople up and running and get yeah. them ready for the world. So tell us how, so you were in this world of procurement and then you said, I think you said about five years ago, you decided, ah, I want to come to the dark side. I want to start my own company. How did that transition happen? I was a bit disenchanted with the corporate world. I wasn't seeing the impact that I wanted to make within the organization that I was with. And I decided at that point that I had to go. And there were a lot of things like personally in my life where I I never wanted to be in a position one day of regret of like, I wish I had done this. And so that's fundamentally what drove me to start my own thing. And it really was a progression of feeling more than it was a progression of logic, more of an emotional decision than a logical decision, because logically it was the worst decision at the time. Because I start when I started the business, I had no money, no influence and no business doing what I was doing. And eventually led up to the point where we are now, which is we're one of the most recognized negotiation training firms in the world. And so that process has been difficult and challenging. I'm not saying it wasn't difficult and challenging, but it was the right decision. And by the way, I'm not saying it's the right decision for everyone. Whenever someone asks me, should I start my own business? The question that I always ask them is, do you feel like you're going to die if you don't? <laughs> if you don't feel like you're going to die if you don't, then don't do it. Hmm. But if you feel like you're going to die if you don't do it, like you have the feeling like overwhelming dread, like I, I regret every single day I'm not doing this, then you must do it. Hmm. Because it's even if you fail, at least you will have scratched that itch. Wow, you make it very compelling for anyone wanting to start a business. Maybe it doesn't have to be that extreme. 
(laughs) (laughs) But I mean, the thing, it's true. A lot of people are like, oh my goodness, you work for yourself. Oh my gosh, this, this, this. And yes, it is nice to be able to work for yourself. But as you grow in scale and you start having employees and you start having people that depend on you, it's not just about you anymore. It's about, I have to run payroll. And if I don't make enough money to pay myself, I at least have to pay everyone else and I have to pay their benefits, right? And so when you think about when you're in a company, even if you're a leader, the arms of the company, the shoulder, it's not on your shoulders, right? That's right. That, you don't have to carry that burden. You don't have to go to sleep and worry about those things. And so you're right. It's like, how bad is it? Is the situation absolutely untenable? If that situation is absolutely untenable and you're like in therapy, like taking FMLA because you just can't deal with it, then you should absolutely do it. But I always recommend entrepreneurs, I'm like, before you quit, you need to like start building your business. And when you can replace your salary with what you're doing, then you can leave. Like, but don't just up and quit one day because that doesn't work out well for people. Yeah. I was fortunate in that I had enough money to basically last me six months. Yep. And so when I left my job, I was like, okay, I got six months to figure this out. If I don't figure this out in six months, I'm screwed. And two weeks before my money ran out, I got my first significant check, which bankrolled the next two months. And then it sort of started steamrolling from there. So I I would highly recommend taking your approach of like, okay, can I build this on the side? If I can build this on the side, do that. Mm-hmm. Because you don't know anything yet. You don't know. know anything yet. And by the way, it's not going to be easy, right? Like it's going to be really, really hard just because it's your own business doesn't mean you get to determine your own schedule. You're probably going to be working twice as much. Yeah, I started my company um, in 2018. And in 2022, I just that was the first time I actually took a real vacation <laughs> where I did take a laptop where, you know, like I just got to relax. Because That's you're amazing. right. It's like you you can't disconnect. Even when you're in sales or you're working for a company, your manager will say disconnect. And you can. Why? Because you have backup. However, when you're in that bootstrapping scrappy stage, like that one deal, that one deal could drop a whole quarter, right? And so you have to be there. And yeah, so this thing of entrepreneurship, it is definitely rewarding. But there are times where you're like, what am I doing? And I yeah. have one client who... Anytime I see her or talk to her, she's like, Northern to Southern California. Either one you want, I'm ready to hire you. I'm like, I'm not moving to California. But it's nice to know that I have a fall flight plan if I need it. And, you know, the thing is, it's really having that passion, but not just the passion. You have to have the drive. You have to have the passion and the drive to get it done. That's right. Absolutely correct. You can't do it without commitment and drive because at the end of the day, the excitement of starting your own business is going to run out. And eventually you're going to have to be like, okay, well, I'm in this now and I've got to be disciplined and I've got to get up early and I've got to do all of these things. Otherwise, it becomes very challenging. So in your business today, how do you work with organizations? What do you do to help them? We teach sales teams and procurement teams how to negotiate and also operations teams and HR teams, but the vast majority of our business is teaching those sales and procurement teams how to negotiate. And specifically, the reason that we do that is because we've seen so many people fail at their negotiations because they're not ready to negotiate. In fact, we do have a course for salespeople to teach people about procurement. It's called Procurement for Salespeople, and that's one of the most popular courses we have because of the exact reasons that you brought up today, because people are like, (laughs) procurement's a bunch of assholes. And so how do we deal with them? And this is how we deal with them. 
Ah, procurement for a sales. Yeah, that's great. Any salesperson, any business owner, if you have to touch sales at all, and even if you're a manager, it's something, again, I always tell my salespeople, like, we don't like them. <laughs> like, what do we What do we need to do? What do we need to do to skirt along? Because you always feel that angst. And so when you're in organizations, are you training the sales teams and procurement side by side? Or is this yeah. different? That's the ideal scenario. If we can get both in the room at the same time, that'll be perfect. Usually it's either the sales team or the procurement team. But if we can get both, that's perfect because then they can both share ideas with each other and once you start connecting them with each other they start to learn from each other and then that only generates success can you share a big aha moment or some kind of magical thing that you've seen about training these sales team and procurement teams together yeah primarily it's about empathy and understanding and you and i spoke about it today right where we've had like multiple like oh okay i see what's going on here <laughs> Salespeople don't know what procurement people go through on a daily basis, and they think of them as the sort of the black box where you're like, are there people there? I don't even know if that's a real person. It just says procurement at, and I don't even know if that's a real person. Or a procurement team looks at a salespeople and says, weasel, snake, used car salesperson. And so there's these both of these like negative connotations that both teams are getting associated with each other, and neither of them is actually true. And so when you can get them together and get them talking to each other, they're like, oh, I see what you're trying to do. And the other party says, oh, I see you're just trying to help the customer. You're not trying to sell them snake oil. And you're like, oh, okay, well, now we can start talking to each other. And that, that's where the aha moments come in. Because once you can have that empathy and understanding with each other, magic starts to happen. I literally, the last slide when I do sales training with teams is having the empathy to understand what your customer is going through. That is literally what makes you excellent in sales. And by putting both of those people together who in a regular world are probably butting heads, they're understanding what's happening on the other side. And if nothing else, that empathy that they develop, and I know you're teaching them fantastic techniques and fantastic things, but the empathy to understand like what is going on on the other it's side, a big part of it. that is so powerful. Yeah, because that helps you to position questions better. It helps you to understand their situation better. It helps you to drive more value better. It helps so much. Empathy is so critical to the sales process and the procurement process. And a big part of what we do is also teaching procurement people how to be empathetic because we're so data-driven. Sometimes that we come across as cold and aloof and withdrawn, and that's not who they are. They're actual real people. Yes, they're humans. And we could probably have a whole nother podcast where we talk about how important having EQ is and having the empathy, because it seems like that's a core part of what you teach. And when we work with leaders and teams, that's the thing that we're teaching. We're not the skills based stuff that's going to come later. But literally, I did a training last week and the person came up to me and he was like, I've never attended a sales training where they talked about this emotional stuff, about all of these self-limiting beliefs, about like this stuff that affects us as humans. And thank you, because that helped set the tone for the day. And the thing is, if we don't talk about this human to human interactions, I am a human, you are a human. I am buying something, I am selling something to you, but we're still humans. How do we operate as human beings? Absolutely. Without it, it becomes really difficult to do your job well. And honestly, I don't think you'll ever get to the point you need to get to, to get to like real success in your job, if your EQ isn't at a very high level. Absolutely. 100% agree. EQ is what leads to success. Your IQ doesn't have to be that high. You don't have to have the best sales skills. 
But if you have the empathy to understand what the person on the other side of the aisle is going through, that is what leads to success. So Mark, we've had a very fantastic conversation. I'm curious, is there an experience, a person, something in your life that has impacted the way that you show up and lead today? Absolutely. I hire a coach for that specific reason. So I have a business coach that I pay a lot of money to, to criticize me on a weekly basis. And that's, <laughs> that's, I know it sounds masochistic, but it's, it's really, it's really important to my growth as a professional and my growth as a trainer and as a business owner to have someone look at, because like, you're only going to get so much from your employees, right? Where they say, Hey, I think you could do this better. I think it takes a really special person, number one, to take that criticism and also to give that criticism. Mm -hmm. And so hiring someone to help you do that is really, really good. It's good for me. It's hard. It's difficult and it hurts my ego, but it is very, very important. Yes. I love to say every coach needs a coach. Like if you're a coach, if you're a leader, if you're a trainer, like if you don't have somebody who is giving you an opinion outside of your head, then you're doing yourself and the people that you're leading and developing a disservice. So that is fantastic. Yeah. And criticism fantastic. sucks, by the way. No one likes it, <laughs> but you need it, right? To get better. So that's why I pay for it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And what is the one best way people want to get in contact with you after the show? Easiest way to go to the website, negotiations.ninja, or if you just go to Google and type in Negotiation Ninja, will be the first result that pops up. Happy to have a conversation with anyone or connect with me on LinkedIn. Awesome, awesome. And have that good old SEO, Negotiation Ninjas. <laughs> Mark, this was a fantastic conversation. I am so excited that we got to chat today. Thank you for your time, your talent, and your expertise. Thank you so much for having me. And that was another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Remember, in all that you do every day, transform your sales. Until next time.